George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, hey, I'm here I, too. Uh, I'm here <laughs> as I'm, well. I'm also We're here. helping George. And we don't put on voices when we read ads. Look, we know you want to get to the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. Now, what more do you people want from us? If Rihanna Giddens' aria code was every week, we'd be screwed. They hired a woman, ladies. <laughs> Come on. So, they, you got to start getting into this. It's so good. Aria code. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Check like, it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. Ooh. Twenty bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on pomegranate molasses and fancy tahini. That's true. That's not so a joke. The, the original ad had something about hair products. And I'm almost bald. So I don't understand what you're trying to go. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to talk about hair products in this room, I'm probably the one that consumes the most of everyone. So, yeah. So, ten bucks buys my hair products for a week, guys. You can do it. Don't think you can give? Oh, yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most so of all, the retweeting is actually very environmentally sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Reduce your carbon footprint. Retweet. Exactly. Just use Especially if you use real birds. Over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most of all, keep listening to America's talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside Studio, WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with stage director Jennifer Williams, an artist who's created numerous immersive and site-specific opera Productions. Plus, we'll recap the winners and near misses at last night's Grammy Awards. We celebrate a very special birthday. We take a peek into the listener mailbag. That's all about 9.30 or so. Do not want to miss that. And, of course, the interview with Jennifer. And lastly, uh, two-minute drill, plumbing problems at Bayreuth and everything else that you could possibly need to know from the past week in Operaland. You can call us on air in that last segment. That's around 9.40. Get your voice heard, 847 847- 866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. It's been a heartbreaking week in Melbourne. Um, Both of the Williams sisters were eliminated in the first week. And then Coco Goff, who is the 15-year-old phenom who beat the world number one Naomi Osaka, was in turn defeated by uh, an American compatriot, um, somebody named Kenan. I forget her first name. She played amazing. I should figure out who she is, but I was shocked and disappointed because I thought Coco Goff would go all the way. On the men's side, my boyfriend, Stefanos Tsitsipas, was also eliminated in the first week. I don't know what I'm going to do, who I'm going to watch. Of course, I'm always on Team Fed. But I have to say, last night, last night, Nick Kyrgios, Rafael Nadal, I don't have a horse in that race, but... I actually was behind Nick Kyrgios. He's a very hot-headed, volatile Australian player who uh, has starting to turn the corner and become a much more <laughs> dignified, respectable person. Seriously. And he donated, every time he hit an ace, and he has the best serve on the men's uh, tournament, every time he hit a serve, he donated $100 to Austra- uh, Australian Wildlife Relief Fund. So, Oliver, uh, you know I love you. Mm. You know I love tennis i play tennis in the summertime you do i thought you were going to say that you were shattered by the death of kobe bryant 
I mean, this is complicated because I don't want to get into the fray, but you know, a person died, eight people in total died, or nine people died Thank in you. total. Yeah. Not just Kobe. So it's not just Kobe Bryant, but uh, man, there's so, all these voices out there talking about what Kobe Bryant might have allegedly done yeah. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, allegations of sexual violence, et cetera. And yes, like, but there's a time and a place to talk about those things. Like, let's just acknowledge that somebody who a lot of people admire um, died tragically, you know? It's very true. I mean, you know, on the show, of course, we talk a lot about sports. We talk about opera even more. It's as if somebody like Pavarotti, say, like a truly world-famous yeah. tenor didn't die like light years after their career, like literally suppose they retired, you know, at their prime and two years later by yeah. a sh- strange act of fate, they were killed. That's the impact of the death of Kobe Bryant. Was he perfect? He was not perfect. Yeah. I, I mean, like, and that's, a, that's the thing. It's like, I don't feel like I want to get into the fray because that's not my brand, but uh, I'm just shocked at how people use these opportunities to, for their own agenda. You know, uh, it's, I'm not a fan of that. So let's talk some opera. Live from Chicago. You're listening. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Acclaimed by the San Francisco Chronicle as an imaginative director of particular ingenuity, Jennifer Williams recently directed new productions for Beth Morrison Projects, Michigan Opera Theater, Pittsburgh Opera, and the Center for Contemporary Opera, an innovator in multimedia, immersive, and site-specific approaches to opera. She's created performance installations for New Camerata Opera, New York's immersive opera company, and public spaces throughout Washington, D.C. She joins us now from phone via Brooklyn. Jennifer, thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me. I it's so funny because you and I we go back a long way. We've had such a similar training background together. Yeah. Wolf Trap, Marilla, Pittsburgh Opera. Now the bulk of our work is site specific as well. I, I that always makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Great minds think alike, I think. Great minds think alike, exactly. Yeah. Um I, I want to get straight to it with you. When I look at your resume and I look at the work you've been doing, immersive and site-specific work really has come to the forefront to you. Why is that aesthetic important just in general to opera, do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what captured my imagination about immersive and site-specific work uh, was the possibility of upending audience expectations about what it means to go to the opera. And I think that's incredibly important. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, the, I think, negative expectations oftentimes that baggage opera has for a lot of audiences. I mean, I love traditional opera, too. I think it's really important. And I would never say that site-specific and immersive work should replace opera entirely, certainly not. But I think it's a really interesting counterpoint and something exciting to add to the mix because of that. Uh, I think, let's see, what first my, I first encountered immersive theater, um, when I was in Germany. Uh, oh, that's another thing we have in common. Yes, we were in Germany. Oh, yeah, that's right. We were also in <laughs> right. Germany at different yeah. times. I just took well. about four drinks right now. I so. know. My <laughs> co-host, Oliver, he drinks. Every time I name drop, he drinks. This he guy's named like, up a place. Like, oh, I've been here. I've been there. So. <laughs> Oliver is now, like, yeah. horizontally drunk. <laughs> 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 so you were in Germany. Yes, yeah, so I was in um, Germany, and uh, for my Fulbright year, and I was working at the Deutsche Oper and the Komische Oper, and um, 
various uh, traditional, uh, well, adventures, the traditional opera houses and museum settings. But in my spare time, I would go explore the exciting theater scene. And I remember going to Hebelon Ufa, which is this tongue theater, this really exciting dance theater. And it, I saw this performance that was all about boundaries. And it was this installation that would filter one audience member through a time. Uh, at a time, and uh, in each installation, is something having to do with crossing a boundary, being on the side of a boundary, um, like being at a border patrol office, um, or being and or things like that. And you would uh, the actors would actually ask you questions and interview you, and then pass your information to the next installation. So I would then walk into this little closet, and someone would pull down. Um, let's see, a window, and ask me about uh, more information about something I had just said in the previous installation. And I thought it was just this astonishing experience, and it made this big impact on me um, because of the immediacy. I think something that really excites me about opera is the um, the level of immediacy that is, is possible through the, um, you know, collision uh, um, and intersection of music and text and theater um, and the visual of it, all of these things. There's this level of immediacy that I think because of the complexity of the art form that other, um, you know, art forms don't achieve in the same way. And so I began to think what would happen if I put um, this immersive experience in conversation with opera. Uh, so my next move is I return to the U.S. and I wanted to explore site-specific work. So I created uh, various installations in Washington, D.C., um, because it's a city that is full of storied spaces. And I wanted to put the spaces and stories of the spaces in conversation with, um, let's see, with performance and the stories of these operas. So my first thing that I wanted to do, I was dying to do, uh, was to direct Don Giovanni in the Mayflower Hotel, which you might remember um, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal or maybe associate with uh, JFK. It's just a, it's the place to go it's a, if you want to have a scandal, basically. It's a place of ill repute um, and notoriety. And they were actually quite excited to have our production there. Um, and so I set it in the bowels of the... Of, of the Mayflower Hotel. And so the audience went to the basement into this beautiful ballroom um, and the experience happened in and around them. And that um, it, it, that sense of adventure, I think, of you know, taking a space where um, performance has not been before and creating a performance that's up close and personal and happening in and around the audience, involving and implicating and um, you know, really interacting with them was something really exciting. And I was, I got addicted. I, I wanted more, <laughs> okay. more of that. You got addicted. Um, and it's, it's taken you... I mean, everywhere, right? So that started in D.C. You've been in New York. You've been at Sacramento Opera. You've been in Hong Kong. You were actually back in Berlin, were you not? Yes, I got to go back this summer. And I had the experience of directing The Crucible in this old uh, uh, film theater, like this uh, silent film theater um, that's uh, called the Theater in Delphi. Uh, it's this really beautiful, exciting old theater. And so I, ha- I decided to take an immersive approach to it, uh, since that's what I, I love to do, particularly for Act 3, which is the courtroom scene. So I set the witness stand in the middle of the audience. Um, and so the pandemonium of that courtroom scene happened in and around the audience with um, the Salem young women running through the audience and singing in and around them and to them and involving them. And it was so exciting and so immediate. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's interesting how that's sort of become the thrust of my work, doing immersive and site-specific and alternative space. When you are putting these productions together, like, don't you just want to cry sometimes because it's so complex? 
I never cry, George. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, like, doesn't it give you your first gray hair when you're trying to to figure how just the logistics of it are all going to work? I mean, what's what is the first step for you in the process? I don't want I don't need to Mm -hmm. go through your whole process. I don't want you to reveal those trade secrets. But like, (laughs) what is the launch for you? Um, I love that question because I think what part of it is that you have to reinvent the wheel and rethink you know, kind of our habits that we rely on, right? So I think habit, habit can be a burden. Habit can be the enemy of creating something exciting, um, creating art, if you will. Um, and so, I mean, for example, for my first production of Don Giovanni, I wanted to use the space as much as possible. So my first question is, what is the audience experience, Right. Um, well, what is that experience? I, you know, I'm less interested in sort of putting the director first. I want to put my audience first and how they, how they experience the story. And I think my starting point really is to think of a, a, the performance less as a presentation and more of an experience or an event. To my mind, it's um, in conversation with Yoyoi Kusama and her Infinity Rooms and those, those uh, art installations. Um, it's in conversation with Meow Wolf um, and, uh, and those experiences are 360 experiences like that. And I think there are a lot of audience members who want that kind of experience and want interaction and a way to interact uh, with their, their communities. Um, so that's kind of my starting point. I think with the Giovanni, for instance, um, it also involves you know, reinventing the wheel in, uh, let's see, kind of counterintuitive ways. So I wanted to use the space as much as possible. So, I mean, one approach to site-specific work is you can kind of load it up with all the trappings of a theater. So bring in your trusses and hang your lighting instruments and basically build a theater inside of a found space, and I, I don't know, which I think is great. Uh, it requires a budget. <laughs> um, but I thought, it, you know, wouldn't it be adventurous if I reimagine the things already here as, um, let's see, sort of delve into their theatrical potential? Uh, so, if, for example, one of my fondest memories of that adventure was being clustered around uh, the fuse box with my uh, production <laughs> designer and um, the director of production and figuring out how to you know, use the, these old chandeliers that were in the space as our lighting instruments. So we ended up writing you know, close to 100 distinct cues just with these little chandeliers. And it, um, it was really, it was great. It was really effective and it was uh, the best thing for that production and for that experience. Um, and I think at the end of the day, was much, I was very happy with that and happier than that, with that than I would have been, you know, loading in a bunch of source fours and trusses. <laughs> you, of course, have made a career out of immersive and, and site-specific work, as well as being a teacher and an acting coach uh, at the Houston Grand Opera Studio. You're going to be at Aspen this summer. If you had to generalize about when you're working with opera singers in training, what are they finding very easy about stagecraft and acting, and what are they all struggling with? Mm-hmm. Let's see. I love that question. You know, often people say, "Oh, movement is the big challenge." I'm not sure that's really the case. I mean, my experience is, you know, if you meet people where they are, um, don't give up on them and be really patient with them and build on what they have. You can find, I mean, get their get them to where they want to be. I think. Um, Let's see. It's interesting because we we live in this time where we have all of these training opportunities that I think previous generations didn't have quite like we do today. So, you know, on the one hand, I think singers and training have this inundation of resources. But on the other, I think one of the challenges is there's sort of this, um, I I would say, a corporate kind of cookie cutter side uh, to this training as well. And I think a big challenge for a lot of 
is bypassing that and finding their authentic voice. Because um, it's very easy to you know, sort of cling to methods that don't really work for them or maybe did at an earlier point in their lives. Um, and so I've, a lot of my work is helping people let go of what doesn't work for them. And uh, so they have room to try things that do work for them. So at the end of the day, I think every artist has to write their own textbook, as it were, uh, you know, to for acting and performance and finding, finding what works for them. I mean, the bottom line is authenticity and awareness. And there are as many ways to reach those things as there are people. Um, so finding more tailored approaches and, and encouraging people to, you know, find their authentic dramatic voice and cultivate their, you know, emotional imaginations, historical imaginations, their ability to be aware and authentic. Uh, those are those are always my goals. Zopper box score in WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist and Oliver Camacho with you this evening, hanging out with stage director Jennifer Williams. Jennifer, we so rarely get to have stage directors on the show. <laughs> Such a, a thrill to talk to you. Um, one of my New Year's resolutions was to wrestle with the phrase, the theater is not a meritocracy. And this is something that's taken me years to kind of finally accept that the theater or that, you know, the opera world is not a meritocracy. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. This is so not a meritocracy. We are so on the same page with that, George. Um, Yeah, I mean, that was sort of a rude awakening for me as well. I think that is the the world in which we live. So, um, you know, I think on one level, let's see. I, in, in terms of how to how to fix that, um, because um, I, I think that that is important. I think you know it, it comes down to respecting the value of, of other people, um, and I think you know that should be in the forefront in the in an industry that's about celebrating the human condition, right? <laughs> it should be about celebrating the value of our, our colleagues and of each other, right? Um, so I think you know on one level it's kind of a conversation. That, there are a lot of angles, but on one level it's kind of a conversation about privilege. Um, and the function of that in our industry. And I think, um, you know, one way to combat that, I think, is, you know, at the end of the day, privilege is intersectional, right? Um, And so when I find myself in a moment um, when I'm in a position to help others and be in a position of influence, um, I need to make sure that I am creating space for others so that I'm, you know, helping create the industry that uh, I want to work in, right? So, it, you know, it would, uh, instead of hiring, uh, for example, you know, a whole team of designers who are, like, this white men, you know, um, making sure that I'm hiring the people who are the best for the job and not people who have, you know, privilege I could stand on to, you know, advance myself. So I think I'm not a feminist if I'm only advancing myself. I'm a feminist when I create opportunities for, you know, for other talented-driven, hardworking people because that's the that is the industry I want to work in and I know is, is around me um, when we're putting those people forward. Um, can, you, can I ask you to, like, just lift the veil on the process of that, though? Because I think a lot of singers who audition for this young artist program and this production or whatnot, they think that the stage director is making the decision on the casting. Can you enlighten us as to how casting decisions are actually made and how uh, a stage director might actually have to advocate for a vision uh, using a different, maybe different race and what might be expected, or different body type of what might be expected? Mm, yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. It's totally different really for every production and every company it, it really really varies i've been very involved as a director i've been 
completely not included in that conversation and everything in between. Um, let's see. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, I think, uh, you know, art is about uh, the celebration of beauty and the myriad ways beauty can be seen. And I think, you know, any person or a company that kind of puts forward one vision of what beauty is, it's sort of antithetical to what this whole exploration of the human condition is about. Um, so I think, you know, I'm not sure if that's like really the best answer to your question, but I think it's it's really an individual specific production you're working on. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of hiring is, you know, on every level, actually in any industry is, is an emotional decision often and not just a logical one. And I think sometimes uh, emotion, emotional decisions can feel like logical decisions, and that's where some people get caught up. Um, but it has it has little to do with you and everything to do with the vision of the oftentimes group of people in the room. I think, you know, often when I am involved in casting decisions, I am one voice in a mix. Um, so, for example, I was in a situation where, uh, um, let's see, working with a company where the company had auditioned a group of singers already. We were given sort of a list of potential collaborators, and it was um, me as the director, the conductor, the composer, and the librettist, and the artistic administrator. And then as a group, we had a collaborative conversation about how to best pass the show. It wasn't a unilateral decision. Um, but, you know, it's different at, different at every company, and it's allocated, and that does, those decisions happen in different areas of companies and in different places. Just to follow, follow up on that, have you ever had to go to the mat for somebody because you saw that they had a skill that would be very useful to you, stage presence, uh, you know, maybe a specific skill that they would need for a particular show that you had to convince, you know, the librettist or the conductor that this is the person we really want for this? Yes, I think it's most challenging when that skill that I see is a latent skill and I know it's something that I could develop in a rehearsal. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, auditioning and performing are really different things that everyone knows. Of. Uh, and, you know, as a director, I look like I think I look at, you know, my collaborators and think, what is it going to be like to work with you for a month um, every single day right? Uh, and, and develop these characters together? So I want to see someone who has personally very biased opinions who, you know, has, even if I don't agree with your every opinion, I want to see someone who's made choices and is not afraid of making bold, um, bold decisions, because that's how, that's how I roll. Um, but, you know, everyone's different, and it's really, it's really subjective. When you talk um, about the, the, the subjectiveness of all this hiring, like, how do you see that applying to yourself as a director, right? Like, surely you must be in positions where you see your colleagues, maybe people that you don't know, getting hired for jobs. Like, I mean, doesn't that make you jealous? Um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think every a lot of people in, you know, that's something that many people experience. I think, you know, we live in a moment where, where fast can be fluid. <laughs> um, and people <laughs> look at resumes in a very emotional way sometimes. Um, I think a lot of, you know, I'm guessing a lot of singers have felt this way too, just, you know, thinking to the conversation we were just having as well. And I think um, the way I've approached it, personally, so I can only really talk about myself at the end of the day, um, let's see, you know, I, I think it's always helpful for me to have something, have something in my hands that really demonstrates my work, not my resume. So it feels like, oh, a resume is this empirical list of facts. And it's, it's not really. It can be viewed through this very emotional list. And I think the most successful interviews I've had is when I've sort of derailed the conversation away from talking about my resume and how 
that person chooses to perceive my experience and my ability and get my portfolio in their hands. My, mm-hmm. um, my portfolio, you know, I have a web portfolio, but I also have a print portfolio. And I have learned to bring that to every single interview and really go to bat uh, for myself and make a case uh, for why I'm the best person for the job. And it comes down, for me, it comes down you know, to the photos of my, my work. And that's how I, I, I get myself forward. So I think when I talk about you know, my previous experience, there's the standard, you know, interview questions when you line up your experience and, and try to talk about that. It, it actually, you know, I hit a lot of walls. and so it's, Photos I, are I actually, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For whatever reason, it's harder to argue with, with photos. So we just um, have a, a, a few minutes left. I just wanted to ask you about something, one of the projects you've done. What's fascinating to me is the idea of a stage for last songs. Would you like to talk about that and tell us what your concept was or who your collaborators were or what inspiration that was for you? Yeah, yeah. That was, let's see, I woke up one morning and decided I had to stage the four last songs and go where no director has gone before. Um, and I knew it had to be an immersive experience because what you know, one thing that's so striking about this work is that there's something inherently immersive about the sound. It's an experience. It's an event. It's not just a narrative. Um, you feel like you're in the middle of it, like you're floating, you know, in the stars. Like you, you know, it's really an experience. And I wanted to unpack that and make that, you know, dive into what might be the visual world. Um, a little background is that I, before I was a director, I was a violist uh, and then a composer. Mm. And so I bring a very, um, for me, music and storytelling have always been intertwined. And that's part of my, that's always been part of my approach and what brought me to, to opera. Uh, so I thought, you know, what would it mean? What does it mean to stand at the edge of existence, right? Because that's what it's really all about for that work. And I thought, well, it needs to be a white box space instead of a black box. Um, it needs to be endlessly white. So it's at once, you know, the the end of something that's been erased and also this this blank sheet of paper and a fresh start. And so I found the perfect spot in, in, in New York called the Alchemical Theater and convinced them to help me produce this. <laughs> and I created this installation in conversation with, um, let's see, you know, infinity rooms and other things that place the audience in the, in the middle of this, this uh, event. And so I created this skyscape in collaboration with Jung Han, who's uh, my set designer. Um, so, and we use video projections created by Andrew Garvis that instead of being on the walls, we're on this cloudscape made of different sized balloons. <laughs> uh, so we projected on these balloons and then on the, on the floor. Uh, and of course, it's a one-woman show. And this was performed by Christina Bakum Sanchez, who is a colleague of mine from a long time ago in Central City Opera. And I never forgot working with her because, she, you know, she was a, an example of, you know, working with a, a young artist, a young artist, a trainee who just had so much potential and she was such an exciting storyteller and I said okay we got to work together someday and this was finally the moment she you know she came to mind and um and luckily she was available and, and came to New York and, and went on this cool journey with me uh, and so to create the movement which happened all around the audience and really engaged with people in a very direct way um, we started with the viewpoints uh, I recently kind of circled back and revisited my training so I like to like to stay curious <laughs> and went to city company and trained with ann bogart for oh wow for viewpoints. to explore the viewpoints and i really wanted to you know have an opportunity to make that my own and, and build that into this because the viewpoints are really about awareness and consciousness and interaction um and openness and i thought you know what better work than than this uh so i the idea was to approach the experience for the audience as a kind of ritual um i thought of uh, the anthropologist Victor Turner's description of ritual and theater as communitas, um, commun- that creation of community. So what does it mean to create a ritual of, of community that's around the, um, you know, to usher someone off of the, the end of experience? 
uh, right? Because we have all these rituals in our everyday lives for, for just that thing. Um, so I, I tried a lot of new things that I haven't tried before, which is which is always the goal. So, you know, she interacted really directly with people. And what that meant is that at one point, um, on this, uh, the first lead ends with the word presence, Gegenwart, the presence that she's discovered. And she lifted up an audience member's hand and, and pressed her hand palm to palm and just held it there at the end of the song, just being super present with that one person. And it was amazing just to watch how astonished she was, uh, the audience member, um, by that experience. Um, and then, for example, at the end of the second lead, I had uh, these little green balloons were on all the chairs. Um, and Christina tossed up her green balloon. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, bidding farewell to to um, summer and sort of a burdened um, phase of life. Uh, and the audience joined in and threw all of their green balloons up with her. So it was this whole ritual and, and common experience that they were totally... Well, don't, give, so don't give it all away. <laughs> well, <laughs> it happened back yeah. in January. It's yeah. actually the, the day that I connected with Jennifer yeah. to, to do the interview was the day that that opened. Oh, wow. I'm so bummed well, that I missed you it. ever put this up again please let us know so we can let people know so we can tell Jennifer people. what's one project that you're really looking forward to that's coming up oh just one oh that's hard I know. Um, sorry you gotta pick um well I'll name a couple and they're all immersive so I'm doing uh an immersive Rigoletto nightclub party at the box in New York um with famous which is um let's see this very notorious nightclub in New York City then I'm doing uh Barbieri Sevilla in Sacramento Opera, which is staged in the round um, with immersive elements as well. Uh, and I'm working with New Camerata Opera to stage Libby Larson's Barnumsbury as a as an immersive circus installation at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. My gosh, it's such a roster. Uh, Jennifer Williams, you can find her on the internet, Jennifer Williams, director, that's all one word, dot com. Jennifer, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Wishing you all the best in the future. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you. Zum Geburtstag viel Glück. That's up next. Only on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Encoda. Endorsed by Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato, Encoda is like a Spotify of scores. It's like, the, it's like the Netflix for new music. It's like the Hulu of notes. <laughs> Okay. Encoda is a beautiful app for streaming the world's largest digital library of sheet music on subscription. They got your novellos. They oh. got your recordings. Oh, they got yeah. your Baron Do They got your Calmuses, though. Do you want to have Calmus at your fingertips? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's cleared up by now. Encoda has aggregated a hundred catalogs from your favorite publishers. Mm. That's thousands of titles, millions of pages of music at your fingertips. Hopefully, you don't get a paper cut, but you won't because it's digital. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll a get a million little paper cuts. You'll get a you know? tablet cut. <laughs> Practice, play, and perform off your phone, laptop, tablet, even your phablet. Wait, wait what's a f- okay. That's your uh, phone tablet. You know those really big phones that only basketball players can hold? You know? Basically, you can play it on your smart toilet. Yes. The Encoda app makes editing and sharing sheet music stress-free and easy. Search content, browse curated playlists, and discover new music by using unique smart technology. That's actually a really good idea. Like, what if you can have music on your refrigerator, those smart refrigerators? Like, so, like, as you're, like, and they're like trying to decide what to do. You could be practicing. You Where know? is my milk? <laughs> this isn't for you, Oliver, because you don't do smart. 
<laughs> Wherever you are, utilize all of Encoda's features and keep your entire library of scores in one place. Download Encoda from your app store today for free trial. That's N-K-O-D-A. And you could also go to encoda.com to learn more. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. It's WNUR 89.3 FM. It's Opera Box Score. Wow, Jennifer is talk. clearly filled with so many ideas. Like, I feel like we could spend the hour just talking to her, seeing what's in that brain of hers. She it's is, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I've known her for years now. She is so incredibly smart. And energetic. Holy moly. She <laughs> is, she's lights out energetic. Mm. Yeah, for real. Uh, so we've got a lot to squeeze into this next little block here. Um, we got a message on Facebook. And you know, we're always asking you to engage with us however you can by email, uh, on social media. And I you know, just in all fairness, not all the feedback we get is good. So I'm going to go ahead and read this message we got about Opera Box Score. This is a podcast that leaves me more and more ambivalent. I love and breathe opera. However, in my humble view, the hosts spend too much time talking or trying to sell modern slash contemporary pieces slash productions and composers or trying to show off that they know about them and miss out on talking about operas and productions that actually have the potential to reach the greater public. Basically, less talk about glass, etc., and more talk about Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, etc. What the public really wants are operas that have recognizable tunes, relatable stories, and passionate moments that will give them goosebumps. Finally, please don't be scared to talk about Wagner. He is way much more accessible than any of these modern slash contemporary composers that you talk about ad nauseum. On a positive note, I love the two-minute segment. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, from see, Bert in Edmonton, Alberta. First of all, thank you for writing in, Bert. Second of all, I'm glad that we have listeners in <laughs> Canada. Yeah, we'll put uh, that on the and, map. And he, it's funny because he, he ends, I'm assuming it's a he, he ends by saying it on a positive note. I mean, I, I don't think his feedback is is negative. I mean, I'm, I'm going to shred it in a couple seconds here. <laughs> but uh, let me let me start with Weston. Weston, I don't know what Weston is doing tonight, but, but here's what he wanted us to pass on. He says, Opera is a vast art form that spans hundreds of years and has been adapted into musical cultures of countries and identities around the world. There's all sorts of interesting, moving, and relevant work out there that can speak to people in all sorts of unpredictable ways. But it's relatively easy to hear Mozart, Verdi, and Wagner. Large opera houses are full of them, and frankly, the giants of the 19th century opera scene don't need any help in the way a new opera by a fresh composer does. He goes on to say, I would hate to have the next Rigoletto or the next Tosca or the next Ring Cycle disappear into history just because we were so enamored with the old classics that we didn't pay attention to the new classics that are being made now. I'll res- read Ashley's response. Greetings. From I do know what Ashley is doing, by uh, the way. She's Ashley is at rehearsal for Cavalier Rusticana with Ricardo Muti and Anita Rajvalishvili. Uh, greetings from rehearsal at Orchestra Hall. First, thank you, listener, for paying attention to the show and for being engaged. Voices like yours help keep conversations about the art form we love alive. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for telling us what you, as the listener, want to hear more about. My hope is to address both what you want and, as you say, the public what really want out of opera. The conversation is going to ebb and flow between traditional canon versus modern contemporary. We do have hundreds of years of music to cover, after all. At some point in time, the shows will focus a bit more on modern, yes. I would think that Part of what drives that conversation right now is that we finally have some A-houses in the United States willing to take on that type of work, which was, what, which was considered too risky up until the last few years. But we're coming up on a whole bunch of rings and a whole bunch of Verdi's and Mozart's, and I would bet money we're going to cover a lot of them too. 
There's a saying in my hometown, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes and it'll change. Same, but with OBS and coverage of the classics. We'll circle back to Puccini, mark my words. As far as Wagner, listen to any episode with Weston, and you will just know how beloved Wagner is mm, in our studio. It's true. I echo West, Weston's sentiment. The greats have hundreds have had hundreds of years of, of listeners uh, heaping accolades upon them. Ellen Reed's just getting started. Both are good. Both deserve a bit of our attention and admiration. And I like to think there's room for everyone at the right kind of table. That's from Ashley Hardgrave, our newest member of the team. I want to add, before you jump in. Please. That uh, I am somebody who uh, my my heart is really with the classics, and I spent years on another show called Opera Now talking about the classics, maybe ad nauseum, but really diving deep into the standard canon works, dissecting arias, dissecting performances, dissecting the span of careers of certain composers and artists. So I've done all of that, and I'm now in my 40s. And uh, I am just now becoming aware of the wealth of repertoire that I've never paid attention to. And thank goodness there are composers like Jake Hagee and Tobias Picker and David T. Little. And I'm sure there are women composers I'm not thinking of right now. Um, Ellen Reed, who are, and Missy Mazzoli, uh, who are making works that uh, speak to the new audience. And honestly, we have to amplify those works if we want this art form to survive. Yes, I agree with you that you're going to hook them with, you know, Puccini and Mozart. And I'm happy to talk about that stuff. But uh, those composers the, and the librettists they work with don't tell the all of the stories of humanity. And we need representation. We need new voices. We need to hear more from women. We need to hear more from, you know, people of color. We need to hear more about, you know, stories of the LGBTQ community. And that's just not in the standard in the standard canon, you know. Thank you, Oliver, for that. We're talking about uh, our listener mailbag here on Opera Box Score. For me, it, the question about the standard repertoire, Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, is that the pieces themselves, to me, the music has really been examined from every possible angle at this point. And so when I look at them as a director, what I'm looking at is that how is an old story going to be made new? And the fact of the matter is, is that the vast number of productions of the standard repertoire in this country is not doing that, is not pushing the art form forward, is not reinventing and trying to find new ways in to these old classics, whether that is through unusual casting, whatever that means to you, whether that is in an unusual setting, whatever that means to you. At its core, that is what is going to push opera forward in this country as much as new repertoire and certainly as a radio show and as something that's entertaining and educational. We have to look at the things where there's friction, the things where there is a story, where there's things where there's something unusual. And the vast number of productions in this country just do not have that unique quality that I would think are interesting enough to talk about. All right, so with just a few minutes left here, I'm going to throw a bone at you there, uh, Bert. Um, it's Mozart's birthday, and we wanted to do a little segment on Mozart and opera. And uh, I teach a uh, survey of music history to high school students. And I have been listening to a lot of Mozart lately. And I have to say, and this is something that I basically said to my students, that my love of opera, my love of vocal music really 
begins with Mozart. And as I had studied different composers, different eras, they all went from either going forward from where Mozart was or seeing what came before him. But whenever I need to be recentered, whenever I need to feel like at peace with myself and I need like just to correct all the noise that's swimming around in my brain, I usually turn to Mozart, especially the sacred music like the Mass in C minor or even the Vespers, the solemn confessor Vespers. Um, but Marriage of Figaro is another uh, is an opera that I go to and I probably listen to it several times a year. And the performance that I come back to again and again, and this is like a little miniature Hall of Fame segment that we're doing here that I'm going to give you right now, is Kiri Takanova uh, with Sir George Solti and the London Philharmonic. That recording, I think, was made in the late 70s, early 80s with Kiri Takanova as the Countess. Um, I, I've listened to many, many, many recordings of this opera and even of just the arias of the Countess alone, uh, probably hundreds of versions I've heard. But the one that I go back to again and again is Kiri Takanawa, the way she phrases this music, the way the voice just fits each phrase so perfectly and how the tone quality just unfurls with just so much beauty and pathos. Uh, it's really hard to beat. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of Porgi Amor. We're going to go right to where the aria begins and proper. So, you know, for those of you who know me know I'm really into historically informed performances. And that recording made probably in the late 70s uh, is not ideal for what we understand as Mozart. So it was a little bit slow and heavy, but just Kiri Takanawa's voice and how you can, I mean, it just feels so human. That's the only way I can describe it. And I've listened to so many different types of Kiri Takanawa recordings, and she's good in certain repertoire, Strauss, definitely Mozart. Um there's some things that she does. I just, I'm not a fan, but her in this role is, is perfection. And I've listened to her give master classes on this music 
And she works so hard with young singers on just releasing the tone. Uh, everybody gets so scared of this aria because it's so exposed. And it's just, you know, just what does your tone sound like uh, on an E natural, on an F natural? I mean, just, you know, measures and measures of having to pour out beauty. And she can do it and listen to other recordings and compare and see how nervous even some of the greatest singers are in this aria, how bound up they get by how exposed this piece is and how Kirita Kwana just kind of just feels like she's... It was, she was meant to sing it. It's incredible. Uh, the finale is, of course, one of the most beautiful pieces, the most amazing combination of opera and church music and touches, you know, genius uh, as, as comes as close as Mozart comes can, can come to, you know, God uh, in this finale of forgiveness. Um, let's hear uh, Thomas Allen with the famous line, Contessa Perdona, and the response of Kirita Kanawa as the Countess. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Haymarket Opera Company, presenting Elizabeth DeShong in concert on Friday, February 28th. Shong, 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 shong. Was that racist? <laughs> What's that? No, man. Okay. That's a famous hip-hop tune. Oh, really? Okay, so I wouldn't know. So I'm the racist one. Hailed by Opera News as an unstoppable presence and one of the finest new voices to be heard at the Met, Met-Soprano Elizabeth Deschong joins the Haymarket Opera Orchestra for an intimate evening of Bach and Tatas at the new Holtschneider Performance Center at DePaul University. It's, intimate a, be- Bach. Beautiful, it's a beautiful venue, actually. It, it's fantastic. Great place. There are many things to like about it, but not the fluorescent lighting. That was... <laughs> um, luminary keyboardist Yori Vinicor also joins the ensemble, taking a turn as soloist in a concerto by Bach. Lighting, luminary, I saw what you did there. Oh. Which Bach? Uh, probably JS, I'm going to say. Johnny C. Bass. Yeah, definitely not yeah. Uh, CPE. Oh, PDQ. 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 Yeah. PDQ. <laughs> It'd be funny if George I, I love this played. PDQ reference <laughs> yeah. here in 2020. Tickets are now available for Elizabeth DeShong in concert on Friday, February 28th with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra. For more information, go to haymarketopera.org. This just in the two minute drill. 
All right, listen up, everybody. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Operaland in the past week. News outlet France 24 reports that the Paris Opera reopened last night after almost two months of strikes by dancers and musicians intent on protecting their state pensions. That was for one performance. Due to, quote, unanticipated technical demands, seven stage performances of the Robert Lepage production of Berlioz's Damnation of Faust have become four unstaged concerts. I'm totally confused. New York Times' Zachary Wolf isn't mad about it. In fact, he'd rather have more concerts of adventurous standard canon adjacent works, which may be too expensive to produce in a gamble at the box office. You can find a link to that editorial on the This Week's Show page at operaboxscore.com. All the toys to the creators' cast and production team of Matthew O'Coins making its world premiere at LA Opera this Saturday, February 1st. It's the Sarah Rule play Eurydice, stage direction by Mary Zimmerman with Danielle Denise in the title role. Other LA Opera news companies announced its 2020 season includes the American debut of Norwegian director Stefan Herheim. The saga continues. According to Armin Press, quote, Soprano Ruzan Montashian accepts offer to perform at Zemper Open Ball as Evazov's sabotage fails. <laughs> Who makes this stuff up? Press release from Dresden Zemper Opera confirms that Montashian will perform the letter scene from Eugene Onegin. In a profile on CBS This Morning, hip-hop artist and flautist Lizzo Hat tipped acknowledged the influence of her classical training. Quote, I love classical music. Tchaikovsky, Kalinikov, Shostakovich. It makes me feel alive. That's one on the scoreboard for us, the gatekeepers. Also at last night's Grammy Awards ceremonies, friend of the show, John Brancy was part of the team to accept the golden gramophone for the Boston Modern Orchestra Project's win for Best Opera Recording, Tobias Picker's fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> Weston wins the office bowl for that one. And we all bet that Joyce would win for song play. That was easy money. Other awards. For the first time, a woman will conduct the orchestra at the Oscars. First, a female conductor at the Academy Awards, then a president. Fort Worth uh, has just lost its art, um, its uh, general director, thank you, that started up in 2017. Tomas Hiltunen, who's from Finland, said he quit because of different visions of the direction and goals of the company. After launching two Oscar Best Picture nominees in The Irishman and Marriage Story, Netflix has acquired the rights to the untitled Leonard Bernstein film that Bradley Cooper will direct and star in. Continue our ongoing conversation about the business of singing professionally. Friend of the show, Anthony Rothstanzo, tells the San Francisco Chronicle that he thinks of himself as the CEO of his own company. A link to that article on our website as well. Last summer at Bayreuth, they blew up the old 1931 toilet block with a plan to build a new one at the cost of 540,000 euros, but those costs have um, overflowed by 130,000 euros, so for the moment, visitors are being advised to go before they go to Bayreuth. Frank Mazura, the Austrian bass baritone, who was an outstanding Dr. Schoenenberg's Lulu, has died. He was born in Salzburg. Also, Wolfgang Amadeus, of course, born this day in Salzburg, 1756, French composer Edward Lalo, born in 1823, Jerome Kern, 1885, and tenor Francesco Merli in 1887. Notable first performances include Handel's Opera Orlando. That was in London, 1773. That one's for you, O.C. Which one? 1733. Didn't I say 1733? Mm-hmm. I said 1933, didn't I? <laughs> Verdi's La Battaglia di Legnano in Rome. That was 1849. Mussorgsky's Boris Gudinov. St. Petersburg, 1874. That was for Weston. Michael Tippett's The Midsummer Marriage in London in 1955. I guess that one could be for me. 
Yes. That's your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports Radio Crash. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, <laughs> Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man. Camacho. Well, hey Norm, hey Norm in the studio over there. You have to yeah. uh, take Tobias off Norm, of the list. Norm, T- Tobias there. is dead to us. Yeah. So sorry, pal. I'm um, going to mute Norm's mic so he can't <laughs> reply. <laughs> so, just from the top, uh, once again, that was the George Schulte-led recording of *Marriage of Figaro*, uh, a cast which includes Kirita Kanawa as the Countess and Sir Thomas Allen as the Count. What else do you got on this? There's so much in this two-minute drill. I mean... And you obviously did not practice reading it today. <laughs> it was incredible. So, yeah, this is this is a biggie. I kind of I kind of ran out of air. Uh, I'm surprised about this seven-stage performances of the Robert Lepage production of no, this Faust. Is, being this is not fun. new. So it, this is not new news, but just the news is that Zachary Wolf wrote an editorial oh, saying that he liked it. Like, I thought this had already happened. Okay, no, no. so I'm not crazy. No, no. So this is this okay. is not news. Uh, but what happened is they just, I guess, changed their plan to do the Lepage Faust uh, from this like high video concept High high tech concept to yeah. no tech concept. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me something yeah. I don't know, Oliver. Well, the reason why I want to talk about it is because Zachary Wolf wrote actually a really great editorial talking about you know what this this was great. It was a good night in the theater. You know, it does feel like an oratorio at any rate. The performance was outstanding, and why not use some of the you know many nights in the theater that the Met can put on to put on shows that we won't otherwise hear like a Vivaldi opera or like a Messian opera like something that is just crazy to stage maybe too long but mm. we have the artists mm. we have the musicians mm-hmm. to do it let's get more repertoire more adventure repertoire you don't want to gamble so put the focus on the music yeah because we have the artists to put the put the music on at a very high level you know I wonder what the crowd was like like if I didn't if, read all if the people article, were digging it or or, yeah. or what have you, um, so that article will be linked to our website. It's, opera, it's on operaboxscore.com. Uh, so it's Grammy review. So um, Sir, the fantastic Mr. Fox won for best opera recording. Of course, song play won oh for um, solo vocal, and that's we could just leave it right there. Congratulations this, to Joyce Donato. But, but now I'm now I'm mad, man, because only just a few weeks ago. You were you were pissed at me because like we're talking about Kanye's opera, we're talking about hip hop too much, and now Oliver, you're bringing your name dropping Lizzo. Hey, maybe it's my turn to take a drink finally. Well, well, no, we're talking about the winners right now. Uh, um, we're talking about song play. You're talking um, about Lizzo. Okay, so Lizzo, congratulations to Lizzo for a great performance, which had an all female black orchestra accompanying her. Uh, way to show literally millions of people that there are black classical musicians put them all on the same stage yeah yeah right (laughs) yeah and they're women too so i was really excited about that um and i love that she in her cbs interview you know wants her audience to know hey i listened to shostakovich man you know i didn't know you watched cbs this morning Uh, is that when you were at the gym I just I knew about it because I know about a lot of things, but I didn't watch it per se. So, and also I just want to shout out to. Well, I, I happen to know a lot about a lot of things. Um, shout out to uh, Gustavo Dudamel, who also won for a orchestral performance for uh, a piece by I think his name is Andrew Norman, uh, 
was written specifically for the LA Philharmonic and the Disney Hall in Los Angeles. And it's a piece about the environment. And uh, the composer is really thoughtful about like, what will this piece sound like in 100 years? And what do I want to tell potential audiences of 100 years from now that we did not take care of this planet? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so that one for best orchestral performance. I know we don't talk a lot about orchestral music on the show, true. but I thought that uh, that piece and acknowledging that piece uh, hit a lot of you know, notes that we like to hit on our show. So, And you're right. Weston really did win the office pool by calling the yep. um, Tobias Picker yeah. fantastic well, Mr. Fox. That was we a, love John Brancy, friend of the show. Yeah, so. good for him. Yeah. Good Maybe for him. because he got the bump, the OBS bump, that helped them get over the edge, you know, with the well, voting panel. What, there, a, so. what a time to be in L.A. right now, right? Like the Grammy Awards, Kobe dies, Ugh. the uh, Sarah Rule, Mary Zimmerman, Eurydice. I remember when that show opened in Chicago. Uh, years ago it was. That's opening uh, on Saturday. No, 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 no. This is Matthew O'Coin's new opera. It's a world premiere. You're thinking of the Ricky Ian Gordon opera. I'm not. I'm not. Eurydice happened in Chicago? Yes. It was originally a play by Sarah Rule. This okay. is like almost... You're talking about the play, not the, the opera. Okay. The play, or the early okay. 2000s. It was first done at, at Next Theater, actually right here in, in Evanston. Here, here's the other big thing about L.A. opera right now, is that they are going to be the first company in America to have a show directed by Stefan Herheim. He is an absolute titan director of Europe. I remember the last production of his that I saw was Ruzalka in Brussels, and it was so incredibly well done. This is the sort of thing that I would like fly to L.A. to go see. He's direct. I think it's Tannhäuser. Okay. Hey, there's a Wagner name drop for Bert. Yeah. <laughs> that that Herheim is directing. If you live in L.A., man, are you lucky right now that you have the chance to see that show. I also just want to note that I don't think you finished reading all of the copy, but uh, John Holiday uh, is also in this production of Eurydice, and uh, we I didn't, had yeah, I had to yeah we had a, a nice show about John Holiday years ago, back when we were when we were young people. That's um, a good point. Yeah, and I also want to talk about um, this uh, Leonard Bernstein uh, bio series. Yeah, you're Netflix really series. excited by this. It's going to be incredible. Yeah. I mean, for like, uh, hopefully, the queer aspect of his mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. will get acknowledged. I mean, they're going to have, I don't know how many episodes to spend on it, but that's one of the most fascinating parts about his career to me and who he slept with. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all the great American composers he slept with. And the fact that Bradley Cooper, who now we know has some musical chops, you right. know, uh, and he speaks French. There's so many things that are great about Bradley Cooper. Um, and he, you know, can definitely look the part. He's got that kind of like rugged, you know, American, you know, lots of hair. You know, it's going to be great. I'm really excited about it. And, and, and sorry, remind me what exactly are Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg doing on this production? Spielberg is directing it or producing it? Where do you see that? I just see that in the link here to the article. Oh, uh, but maybe um, they're. Oh, sorry, no. Scorsese and, and Spielberg are are producing it. Okay, so, but okay. you know, uh, with Netflix, with those like anthology series, sometimes directors take one episode. You yeah, know? So anything. I mean, anything's possible. Yeah, anything's anything's possible on that. So, all right, I'll get that on the queue as well. Um, so, other people who were uh, born this year, Jerome Kern. Do we think of Showboat as an opera? Well, lyric has done it. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that it's an opera. Yeah, it's not. But um, you, know, you can put opera singers. So that was back in the day when people sang without microphones, right? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, classically definitely. trained is not bad. And Jerome Kern. Jerome Kern. Edouard Lalo yes. wrote, wrote the opera Le Roi Dix, and tenors know Lalo because of that um, beautiful aria Venemont. I don't think anybody else knows any Lala music, but uh, the Sin- violin concerto Sinfonia is good. Sinfonia Espanol, yeah. right? The Sinfonia yeah. Espanol and the violin concerto are, are awesome pieces. Yes, exactly. And um, then we have, um, what else happened? Oh, Boris Goodenough, that'd be for Weston to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. I saw The Midsummer Marriage, I think. Was that at, at Lyric Opera years ago? Years, yeah. years ago, it was. Yeah, it was it's horrible. A, yeah. I, I can't speak to that, but... It's definitely a very strange piece. Yeah, I remember being like mortified while I was, I was like, not I need to be. To there's like, here. there's, there's. I think there's full frontal nudity in it. I like, mean, like in the script. That's not like an interpretation. Like, I, I think. Is it like a fairy queen? I mean, like a Midsummer Night Dream type of rustics nude? Like, it's, t- it's, it's bizarre. It's okay, a little yeah. more. I, I remember I couldn't sit through it. It's so. a little more groovy. Than that, if so, Ruzan Montashian uh, will sing I, the letter scene. I just at don't. Next week's I don't have. The, I don't have the brain power to try and understand this one. So. I wonder if Mr. Trapka will shit will boycott as a result. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. We'll follow up on the story after it happens. That would be exciting. Anything else you want to hit? Uh, you were excited about the toilets flooding. Uh, I, I'm well. I had some plumbing problems yeah. over the weekend. Not to overshare. <laughs> um, Actually, we were all sick at my house this, this weekend. It was weird. Uh, I just thought this was funny that 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 like you're expected to to go to the bathroom like before or after you get to Bayreuth, but the works that they're producing run into like the three, four, five. Hey, Wagner, we just hit up Bert again. Yeah. Um, the three, four, five, six hour mark. Yeah. So, so like before you show up, are yeah. you like peeing in the bushes or like yeah. avoid drinking in the intermissions, maybe, or like bring a pepsi bottle i i'm just trying to trub- <laughs> i'm trying to troubleshoot right here you could pass them out with your program here's like <laughs> a a little uh bag for you to pee into you know? <laughs> let's wrap this show up live from chicago you're listening to opera box score uh, let's get ready to rumble ah uh, I, I like this two-person show thing you're not a fan. No, it's okay. I just miss Ashley. We need some ladies up in here. So, <laughs> I know I'm a lady, but we need like, some, not a lady, some cisgendered Oliver. ladies. That's not here. what I thought you were going to say. But, um, but especially when we have like female interview I hear, guests, I, I feel it. bad I when it. it's just like bros like talking to women. Like when Tamara Wilson was on, I was embarrassed. It's like, oh, we should have gotten a woman on the panel, you know? Yeah, I feel you. But anyway, um, I'm the gatekeeper. You got a good call? You yeah. got a bad call? Um, got- just to remind everybody that Porgy and Bess is uh, in HD this weekend. Friend of the show, Janai Brugger as Clara, I think. I forget which role she sings. but That's great. Um, boy, good call, bad call. I'm trying to think. Your computer got broken. That was definitely a bad call. Yeah. So if, that's if why George, George to, is a little bit discombobulated if today. If anyone wants so. to donate to plus the, box the, plus the plumbing at his donate. house and all the sickness at his house. Yeah, so. it's just, man, everything's everything's breaking yeah. right now. So it's you need to bad. donate $2,000 so George can get a new laptop. <laughs> <laughs> that's he it likes for Max. This week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. General managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somal Sangvi. Our announcer is Norma Dell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. 
Opera Statistics and On This Day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. It really does mean a lot to us, and it helps us keep the conversation going. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. Creative consultant for Opera Box Scores, Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation now that the Pro Bowl is over, the mediocrity that is the Pro Bowl. Maybe we'll talk about uh, Super Bowl next show. We're back next Monday. It's February 3rd, 9 p.m. Central. More opera news, more hot takes, more football. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment. Chicago Sound Experiment.